Just be seated. So we've been looking at Jesus, but through the ministry of John the Baptist. And bizarrely, we've barely even mentioned baptism. But in verse 22, you know, it's weird, isn't it? All this Baptist talk and no baptism. But in verse 22, we read that Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there and with them and was baptizing. And verse 23 says, John also was baptizing because water was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized. So it describes suddenly a lot of baptism and a lot of water and a lot of people. It's very clearly a fruitful time with two successful ministries going on at once. But in verse 24, there's this little side note. If you have scripture open in front of you, you'll see uh, the way that's formatted, a bracketed comment, like uh, ominous background music in in a movie telling you something bad is going to happen, brackets. For John had not yet been put in prison, close brackets. Now, it's just a side note, but it's a really important piece of detail for us, reminding all of us that there is always a cost to a successful ministry. And if you come to faith, or you grow in faith, or you share your faith, you will come under attack. It will happen. And if you do come under attack from outside, whether it's human forces or the demonic forces behind them, whatever it may be, attack is always a sign that you're doing something right. It's going to happen. One of my friends came to faith at college. He was baptized at the end of term and he came home for Christmas and told all of his family. And his family was angry with him for becoming a Christian. And his siblings wouldn't even speak to him at Christmas. And of course, there's a story behind all of this. They, they didn't know what had gone on in his heart. They didn't know what had happened to him. They didn't know about repentance, and they didn't know about freedom, and they didn't know about grace. They didn't know about a fresh start. They, they just saw that their brother and their son had changed. They didn't understand it. They felt threatened by this. They felt judged by his new beliefs. They felt rejected by him, even though he'd done nothing of the sort. So what they did is they reacted against him, and that will always happen. We'll always come up against something when we share our faith, and we need to know it's going to happen wherever the status quo is threatened, wherever the wisdom of the world is challenged, we will be attacked for that. And I just want to observe one thing, and that is that that resistance and revival often go hand in hand. There's something about success and attack that often go together, and maybe they one starts or precipitates the other, but we will often find that the church will be attacked and actually often the church is booming wherever she is. First Peter 4.12, he just says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's normal to come under attack for your faith. A successful ministry will always come under attack from outside. We can, of course, also mess it up really badly ourselves. We don't need a lot of help to mess up our own ministries. And uh, I'm going to show you today seven different ways 
in which you can mess up your ministry. And ministry isn't about a piece of plastic around your neck. Every believer has a ministry. So number one, seven ways to goof it up. Let's see how many we can check off the list, shall we? Number one, superiority about knowledge. Look with me, please, at verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Discussion arose is a very sanitized way to put this. I sometimes wonder if the Bible translators also happen to write a lot of vestry minutes. Because I've seen your warden sitting right here on the front pew. But I do sometimes wonder if this is how it is, because a discussion did not arise, okay? The grammar says, not between, but from, the grammar says they started a discussion. And uh, even the word discussion is a little bit of a euphemism, because argument or conflict might be a better way of putting it. In other words, discussion arose, they started a fight. That's what they did. And I think it's such a human thing to do, isn't it? To start fights, to get something right in our heads, some new piece of knowledge to feel superior about that. And we might have only known this thing for a few minutes, but suddenly we go around looking for someone in the wrong to teach a lesson to. Uh, New Christians, I think, can be a little bit like that kid at school who learns a martial art. And then on Monday morning, goes around the playground looking for someone to slap. Uh, John's disciples right here are doing bapjitsu. That's what it is. They're using their very newfound knowledge about baptism to start a fight and tie somebody up into a pretzel. And it's all about detail, isn't it? They're proud of the detail they know. Well, there is a, a marvelous book called Systematic Theology by an author called Wayne Grudem. I've got one, and I recommend it to you. I don't know if I'm off camera, but I'll be back. In fact, I recommend these two great books, an ESV study Bible and Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Fantastic. This is 80% of a pastor's bookcase right here. Um, So you can do 80% of a good pastor's job with these two books, which kind of smokes us out because some pastors do worse than 80% of a good job with a ton of them. But I recommend them to you very much indeed. Uh, It's a a book that really tries to answer every major theological question that you could have about all sorts of doctrines. And I don't agree with everything he says, but where believers disagree, the author of this book is is very generous to mainstream points of view. And I'm referencing it because of what he says in the introduction to this weighty tome with all of this knowledge. He says this, It would be very easy to adopt an attitude of pride or superiority toward others who have not made such a study. But how ugly it would be if anyone were to use this knowledge of God's word simply to win arguments or to put down a fellow Christian or to make another believer feel insignificant in the Lord's work. Now he also goes on to say in that introduction that studying this book in detail and then Surprising your pastor on a Sunday with difficult questions is also mean. So uh, don't do that, please. But I commend the book to you, and I'll put a link to it on the various uh, Facebook pages and things that we have if you want to get a copy of it. Or if you want me to get one for you, I'll do that. Do you see the risk of knowledge, though? 
Do you see the risk of learning lots of theology? Is that we become quite superior in our attitude about it. And Paul says to us a very simple phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, the funny thing about this discussion that arose is we don't actually know what the dispute specifically was. All we know is that it was something, somehow, to do with purification. But the detail is missing, and that's the Bible's way of telling us that the detail is not the point. Perhaps the argument didn't even really matter. They're starting a fight. That's what we need to know. So what do we have here? We have a successful ministry. Attack is coming from outside because it always does. And then we have some ministry mistakes coming from inside, the first of which is superiority, a puffed-up head about knowledge. And next, superiority about knowledge. Next comes inferiority about numbers. There's a kind of insecurity here in the hearts of, of these people. And territorialism, even, is revealed to us in verse 26. There is concern from John's disciples that Jesus and his disciples are poaching their people. Look at verse 26. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Their ministry is getting more likes than ours, John. What are you going to do about it? I want to pause and zoom in a little bit here and see some, some of these mistakes. I think it reveals to us this little phrase or this saying of theirs, how insecurity really can distort your view of reality. And as your view of reality gets distorted, how that in turn leads to several more mistakes. Zoom with me right in on their words. All are going to him. It's not true. It's a lie. Go back to verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. A lot of baptism, a lot of water, a lot of people. John is, in fact, doing very well indeed. But their insecurity about numbers has blinded them to the success of their own ministry and what they've achieved. And so number three, they're not celebrating success. They're overlooking it. Number four, that has in turn exaggerated their fear of failure. And so all they can see at this point is that someone else is doing something better. That's all they care about. Satan loves this. He absolutely adores this. Satan loves it when we start to measure ourselves against other people and measure our ministries, we all have one, against someone else's. And uh, then we start to think about how far short we fall of those other people. Well, look at them. They're holier than I am. They're better than I am. They've done more than I have. They're doing all these things. I'm not good enough. He loves it when we start to do this because if he can get us to compare ourselves to other people, then he can get us to give up. As soon as we do this, as soon as we measure ourselves against people and not against Christ, we start to get lost. 
Because it means instead of realizing that we fall short of a perfect standard that we could never possibly attain. And then we confess our failure to measure up to that perfect standard and find hope of being saved from our sin and our falling short, which, by the way, baptism is all about. Instead, what we do is we grade on a curve, we find ourselves wanting, and we constantly feel like there's somehow more we should be doing. He loves that, because when you get into that trap, you will give up. So John's disciples, they're in a mess, aren't they? They've got superiority about their knowledge, inferiority about their numbers. They fail to celebrate success, overlooking the good. They exaggerate their fears, fixating on the bad. And five, they measure themselves against others, which means number six, guess what? They overlook Jesus. Just a little bit ironic as well when you think about it. (laughs) Go back to verse 26. As they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They're jealous of this other ministry that's going on. And who's doing it? Jesus. It is actually Jesus that they are jealous of right here. The one to whom you bore witness, in fact. They're jealous of the one that they work for. The one they've been waiting for since page three of the Bible and that their whole ministry is all about, is doing well. Oh, no. John, what are we going to do? He's like, uh, well, nothing, weirdos. What's the matter with you? It is actually Jesus. He's the point. It's another trap, though, for us. I hope you do realize that sermon, by the way, is not laugh at people in the Bible time. Sermon is laugh at selves time. That's the point of this. Let's be honest. Let's be vulnerable. Don't we all do this? It's such an easy thing for us to do. It's a trap to make our ministry about ourselves so much that we forget Jesus. We've all done it. So let's go a layer deeper still. Let's get to the real problem here, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It was never your ministry in the first place. It came from God. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Savior, says John. Illustration, verse 29. If he's like the groom... I am like the best man. And who is the bride? We are. The church is the bride of Christ. We should be absolutely thrilled about Jesus doing well. Because that means we're doing well. We're not married to John the Baptist. We're married to Christ. Which, by the way, is why we're called the Christians and not the Baptists. That's a joke. You can laugh at that if you like. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate that. <laughs> We're married to Jesus. How can you be jealous of yourself doing well? Our identity is in Jesus. There's only one name given to us under heaven by which we must be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. And the problems all come from when we, we focus on ourselves and our leaders 
and our ministries and their ministries, and we think that those things are the Savior instead of Jesus. When that happens, church, it's only a matter of time before everything will go wrong. How many famous ministries have we see go belly up this year? How many prominent ministries collapse in some catastrophe? It happens all the time. It's not a surprise. It's only a surprise when we've come to see that minister as, as the saviour. The problem is we've got too full of ourselves. And Advent is a reminder not to be full of yourself. It's a time to repent. And John makes a simple point, a simple solution to all of these mistakes. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He says, it's necessary for me to get out of the way. Why is that? Because Christ is the way. And John's job is simply, as we've seen in this series, to point to Christ and to get people ready to meet him. The wonderful piece of good news being that we don't even really get ourselves ready to meet him. He gets us ready to meet himself. Christ alone takes our place on the cross. Christ alone dies for our sins. And having been buried, Christ alone rises to new life to give us new life. And Christ alone ascends, and he presents us before the judgment seat, before the throne, as though we were perfect, with his identity imputed on us. And baptism beautifully becomes for us an image of all of these things and much more. The immersion in the water and the rising up from it, a picture of that immersion in the grave and the resurrection to a new life to come. We submit to this as a sign that we submit to Jesus Christ, as a sign that we're being raised to a new life. You can't resurrect yourself. It's all about grace. Baptism testifies to grace. It testifies to Jesus Christ, and it is all about Jesus. Let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that whatever mistakes we may have made, and they might be far more catastrophic than the ones we've outlined this morning, you cleanse us from all of our sin. You approach us in grace. We're floundering. You come and rescue. God, we, we can laugh at ourselves because we have the security of knowing that you don't laugh at us, but you love us. It's your grace, it's your compassion, it's your tenderness that is manifest in baptism, is manifest in Jesus Christ, in the cross, in the grave, in the resurrection. And God, this Advent, we turn once more to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.